Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Dale H., Michael P., Nick W., and Paul M. John Polamy is our guest today. John is founder and editor of Actionable Intelligence Alert, an investment research and education service focused on various areas of the markets that takes a contrarian, non-mainstream approach to investing. You can learn more about their work at actionableintelligencealert.com. John, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Well, John, for the audience uh, who might not know you and your work, can you give us your background? So uh, my background is basically that uh, I've worked in the power industry for about 35 years. And that's my trade, building and operating various power plants, whether they're nuclear, coal, natural gas, and now renewables. Uh, during that uh, tenure, during doing that, I became interested in investing like a lot of people do, trying to make money in the markets. And I had a particular draw towards the energy markets because I was involved in, in the energy markets. And I... As most people do, you, you do reading and, 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 and thinking about uh, how to go about this. And I wasn't very successful when I first started. And I started trying to figure out why I wasn't successful. And then I started realizing that when I was had a particular focus on the energy markets and then the resource markets in general, I began to realize that these are very cyclical markets and trying to understand the cyclicality of previous markets and then trying to apply it going forward and how to operate in that cyclical environment uh, kind of led me to creating the newsletter and YouTube videos, trying to talk with other folks about this because I lost a lot, of, tremendous amount of money uh, when I first started out. It was a learning curve just because I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, I think a lot of people uh, are in the same boat. I'm trying to give them the information that I learned the hard way so that they can uh, profit and uh, better understand how to uh, operate in the cyclical environments. And uh, you, you've done a number of different stuff in the energy industry. I understand you were with uh, Duke Energy at one point and, and you've uh, moved over to other parts and pieces of the energy industry. And I know that you're not a, a big fan of renewables, but uh, at the end of the day, when, when re services are required and you get paid for those services, it, it stands out to make sense. So can you share a little bit more with us on, on what you're up to now? Yeah, like I said, I mean, the current zeitgeist in the West appears to be a uh, desire to build out and use renewable energy, i.e. wind and solar. Um, as I said, I, I'm not a policymaker. I have my views like everyone else. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the end of the day, I'm a pragmatic person that has to provide for people. And, you know, the, the particular trend now is we're not building coal plants in the, in the West. We're not, you know, we're not building a lot of nuclear plants in the West. The trend seems to be renewable energy. And if you're in project management and construction, then uh, you need to pivot to that. Uh, it's a business decision. And I think 
you know, expanding upon it, I think that kind of applies to investing. It's something I've been thinking about recently is, you know, I've talked to a lot of folks, give you an example, you know, people sometimes have these various biases that they have in their, in their mind for whatever reason. Charlie Munger talks about that. And people need to purge themselves of these biases. I mean, in the end, you're investing, at least I am, or speculating in the markets, I think most people are, to increase their wealth, uh, to achieve goals, whether education for a child or retirement. You know, we're not here to make political statements. And I think people don't bifurcate those things sometimes. And they allow, they leave a lot of money on the table because they are, um, you know, trying to make a political statement and they're investing. And I think in many cases that should be bifurcated. Now, obviously, you know, uh, I take certain stands against certain things just because, I mean, I don't invest in tobacco stocks just because I, I don't care to be involved. I just, just for, for my own internal reasons. But uh, I think, you know, just to say, for example, during the previous administration, I mean, we had one of the biggest stock market runs after 2008 because of central bank largest. But a lot of people were out of the market because they didn't personally like Barack Obama for whatever reason, or they were a Republican and he was a Democrat. That's a, that's kind of biases I'm talking about. And I think uh, the same thing, you know, in this particular industry, I have my own views on energy uh, and energy transitions and these things. I've studied this, been part of them. And, uh, you know, obviously in the end, uh, you have to put food on the table and take care of people. And, you know, if renewable energy is what the policymakers and the voters in the Western democracies have decided to do, then one needs to pivot to that if one wants to continue working in that industry. But I'm happy to talk about, you know, energy density and all those things and why, you know, we've never seen civilizations uh, go to less dense energy sources vice more dense energy sources in their transitions. But that's a that could be a two hour lecture. But anyways, uh, yeah, I think. Some of those biases sometimes, and I appreciate that question because I think that kind of leaks into sometimes in people's, uh, obviously there's certain things, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be investing in Myanmar when they're displacing uh, their Muslim population, stuff like that on grounds. But I think just to take this adamant, you know, I'm not going to invest in, like, say, nuclear power because I'm against it. And a lot of times you can't give good facts as to why you're against it. It's probably not prudent in some cases, as an example. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree with you. And back in the Northwest, uh, for some consulting that I do, for example, uh, you know, there was uh, many contracts to take out old hydroelectric facilities, decommission them, tear out old forest roads, um, decommission forest roads. Uh, the difference was, even though maybe the policy wasn't necessarily sound, the contract had attached some some money and some work to it, and so. It made sense to to, to go ahead and, and move forward with with some of those projects just for the purposes of it was work and it put food on the table, even though you may not agree with the policy of removing forest roads or removing hydroelectric facilities. But yeah, certainly uh, interesting comments in your comment about uh, Obama, for example. Uh, you know, I mean, in light of the cast of characters and clowns that you have running for office now, uh, you know, he doesn't look so bad. If you look at some of the policies that are being proposed by some of these other people. Uh, running for the office. So it's uh, put it in perspective and um, certainly interesting parts and pieces there. And uh, McDonald's, for example, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with eating at McDonald's every day. Uh, it, it, is, it is a fine stock and I do occasionally 
stop at McDonald's from from time to time and and certainly try Hershey's bars and Hershey candies out and and do that as well and uh you know it's certainly unacceptable that I could eat it all day every day but uh nonetheless I I certainly like the companies and I do like the products and I think to some degree it's it's take it with moderation and I think the same applies with nuclear power whether you're for or against it is irrelevant but when you look at the sector uh you have to put a unbiased view on to what is going on in the sector and what could potentially make sense from a financial investment standpoint and I think you you touched on those subjects I think it's uh, fantastic well John can you tell us in general how you approach your investment ideas and what things tend to spark your interest when you are looking over the markets I'm lucky in that I guess it must be just genetics but I'm innately curious person so I ever since I was a little kid I mean I'm a voracious reader and consumer of all types of information and sparking curiosity or if I see something that I, in my reading or something that piques my interest um then I will veer off into these various wormholes and who knows where I end up and I think I go back to again Charlie Munger's one of my heroes I remember he said something to a graduating class of Stanford MBAs one time. One of the M graduating MBAs stood up and asked him, you know, what's the key to your success? And he said, read 500 pages a day. And, you know, he, was, he said the same thing. That, that's all him and Warren Buffett do all day. He said, Warren and I sit around and read all day. So I think, you know, what I do is I take in all types of information. I read all different types of uh, things, not just financial books, but uh, if I'm interested in something electrical or magnetism or who knows what, anything, it could be anything, a chemical reaction or something, I'll go off in some wormhole study. And I think when you do that, it creates a latticework of information in your brain, or it does at least in mine. And then sometimes uh, when we're talking about energy, for example, I mean, I understand and I've read the history of energy and energy transitions during the Industrial Revolution in England, things like this. And I understand what it takes because I'm in the industry, you know, to create and maintain this advanced technological and industrial societies that we live in. So um, I start there with my information. Something will pique my curiosity. I'm an extensive traveler. I travel all over the world in very weird places. Um, in the last 10 years or so, I've spent a lot of time in Central Asia, uh, former parts of the Soviet Union. And, um, and people ask me, like, a lot of my ideas come from there. I mean, in my investing, I'm really interested in emerging and frontier markets, and people ask me why, and I'll tell them, well, it's like Willie Sutton said, you know, why did he rob banks? That's where the money is. And why am I interested in emerging and frontier markets? Because that's where the growth is. That's where the positive demographics are in the age group. So I think, you know, it kind of starts there, then I'll go down whatever rabbit hole and then wherever it takes me. Um, like with this energy, I mean, I hedge my bets. I, I feel that hydrocarbons are not going to go away for many decades. They're going to be with us. Uh, I do think that uh, other forms of energy, are, whether they're going to be politically forced or market forced, are going to be included, i.e. renewables. So that I hedge my bets. So you start talking about various levels, for example, of electrical vehicle penetration. Well, what does that mean for copper demand? What does that mean for nickel demand? What does that mean for cobalt demand? And you start putting together a spreadsheet, you start diving deeper into information, talking to other people in the industry, then you start realizing, well, maybe people haven't thought this out because in order to get to where these linear projections are taking them, 
these materials don't exist. So then that starts sparking a, well, if they're going to force this or it's going to end up at their 30 million electric vehicles per year or whatever they're projecting down the line, then there's going to be need. There's a big gap in the materials to get us there. And I think a lot of people forget that. And I think that creates an opportunity in my mind, which then leads me down to talking about or investigating various methods or vehicles to take up, take advantage of that particular opportunity. Fantastic. And, and I'll have to twist your arm one of these days, get you down into Central and South America looking around as well. And sounds like you've been to some potentially nastier places than even that. So all good stuff there, John, and certainly understand why some nights we uh, <laughs> we're up at one, two in the morning, uh, reading, reading, investigating stuff. And, and of course, the, uh, the wives are saying, why aren't you in bed? <laughs> That's it. Well, I want to ask you uh, thoughts on the broad market today and what areas do you see as places that are worth paying attention in these uh, bull market? What do you see going forward? Well, one of the things that uh, I've kind of come to the conclusion of is that, you know, if you're going to uh, talk about the overall markets, I mean, I've kind of realized I really have no advantage there. I mean, if you're competing against, you know, Bridgewater Associates or, you know, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, they have banks and banks of AI and PhDs. And so I don't have a general view on the markets. Obviously, if you ask me what I think, I will say that they are historically overvalued based on history. Uh, however, uh, I also have come to the view, uh, which I realized a long time ago, but kind of forgot, is that monetary policy has a big influence on these equity valuations. I mean, uh, money creation or lowering of interest rates. I mean, the, the, the financial press is really not doing anybody a service by not questioning the uh, questioning the intelligence of, you know, cutting interest rates when we supposedly have the best economy with the lowest unemployment and, you know, a, two generations and all-time highs in the stock market. I think anybody that's invested in the general stock market in the United States, at least, uh, is sitting on a pile of dynamite with a fuse that's lit and you don't really know how long the fuse is. So I think that over the next five to 10 years, uh, based on my, I'm a big fan of um, tape ratios and that mean reversion. Uh, Meb Faber, who uh, people can look up at Cambria Associates, he's written several books about this mean reversion and using the tape ratio to look at historical valuations of undervaluation, overvaluation. And basically, where we sit right now in the US is that we are looking at 10 year returns into the future that are going to be in the low single digits and you can possibly expect a very large drawdown in one of those years of anywhere from 30 to 60 percent so that doesn't mean that the market can't go higher i think it will i think that uh, you typically have blow-off tops historically in sediment we haven't really seen that i think that with monetary policy where it's at right now and loosening i mean i track worldwide interest rates that's another thing that's Kind of a contrarian view I have is that we're actually starting to see some turnaround around the rest of the world, seeing over 80 different central banks cut interest rates or get easy with their money over the last six months. And at some point, uh, this wave of liquidity will have a tendency to, uh, you can force nominal GDP growth if you put enough money, let's put it that way. So I'm not a big fan of uh, the U.S. stock market in general. Uh, I think it's overvalued. I think there's some sectors there that you can be active as a contrarian uh, over the next five to 10 years, I think are gonna do very well that are under 
undervalued and have demonstrated they can be countercyclical. But uh, overall, I'm not a big fan of um, U.S. equities in general. You know, the markets today, they, they seem, when you look at natural resources and the, the non-performance of nat the whole natural resource spectrum, it just looks very, very similar to a 2000, 2001 type scenario where you have all the money's on one side of the boat. It's in the broad market. It's in tech stocks. It's in weed stocks, cannabis, uh, you know, biotech, um, cryptocurrencies. I mean, it is all over there. And no love, no attention, no capital is in the natural resource sector. And it just uh, looks, for us, fantastic. So it'll be very interesting to see how this goes going forward. And obviously, there are signs of life uh, in the natural resource sector now. The uptrend appears to be in place. And we certainly are moving off the late 2015, early 2016 uh, area. And everything is generally higher, even including the uranium sector. In general, most of your stocks are off their lows. The uranium price is off its low. Um, and a lot of other sectors, I think you have that as well. If you look, go back and look at copper, for example. So I think we've got some interesting things coming down the pipe and certainly excited to be here and be ready for what's next. Well, let's talk uranium for a moment, John, if that's okay. I want to talk about other sectors in, in a little bit here. Why is exposure to uranium important and where does it stack up on risk versus reward and outcome certainty for you? As I stated earlier in the conversation, I'm a generalist investor slash speculator. So in general, when you look at nuclear power, having been in the nuclear industry when I was in the U.S. Navy, um, I remember Admiral, um, one of the admirals saying that at some point it would be so cheap that it'd be giving it away. Now, obviously, that's not the case. But what I see is from the perspective of being the, the cleanest, cheapest, best source of power, nuclear power fits the bill. And I think people need to look at it from an energy density perspective. I mean, there's, you can do the research, but, you know, you, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's like one pound of uranium equals so many carloads of coal and so many, you know, thousands of barrels of oil, things like that. And I think that, you know, energy underpins everything that we do, every facet of our life, every activity, and energy demand is going to continue to grow. And if you look at just developed economies, whether in Western Europe, the United States, Japan, South Korea, and then you take the populations of emerging Asia, i.e. China is not even fully developed yet, India, Indonesia. I mean, you're talking about 3 billion people. You're talking about a billion people in this world that have never flipped the light switch. And then you look at the situation, for example, we use in China. I mean, in China this year, uh, in recent news reports, they're going to build the equivalent of the entire uh, like 168 gigawatts of coal-fired, that's 168,000 megawatts of coal-fired um, generation this year just in China. That's almost the entire uh, amount that's in, currently operating in Western Europe. So the demand for electricity and energy is there. Uh, and if you, you can Google this, I use this exercise all the time, Google images of pollution or air pollution in uh, China or Beijing. Everybody's walking around with masks and in the fog not necessarily CO2 that you're seeing there because CO2 is odorless and colorless, but you're seeing particulate matter. You're seeing, uh, th this is very dangerous, uh, breathing in the constituents of coal-fired uh, emissions and uh, automobile emissions. And I think that, 
you know, if you're in a situation as a policymaker in China or India, the demand is there. You have to increase energy production for your economy to move forward. Um, you can't kill the population in the in the um, while you're doing that. So, um, and if you're in a situation like a lot of economies there, you want a diversified energy uh, spectrum. You don't want to just be dependent on one form of generation. That just is prudent from a policymaking standpoint. So, I think a lot of people get lost in because they have home country bias or things of this nature that. Well, there's not a lot of nuclear development in the United States. It's just, you know, Votal reactor being built uh, out east. And then in Western Europe, obviously, you have, uh, with the exception of uh, France and maybe I think Sweden or Finland's building another reactor. You know, Germany's talking about closing their reactors. I mean, the focus really needs to be on Asia and the fact that nuclear power is a growth industry. Now, it's not growing at 10 or 12% a year, but it is growing. There's more reactors operating now than before Fukushima accident, and there's more reactors under development and being planned. So the problem is that the fuel, there's no fuel substitution in a nuclear reactor. It requires uranium and no other fuel. I'm not going to get sidetracked into thorium and that science fiction. I'm obviously, you know, maybe down the line that will become a reality. But currently, right now, to fuel a nuclear reactor, you need uranium. And there certainly has not been uh, enough development of new uranium sources um it's not that we're going to run out of uranium it's just that the price signals being sent to developers and producers is not sufficiently high enough to to meet the demand that will be required so i think that creates an opportunity for people that uh can can see that and understand that and um you know you can look at various numbers. I'm not the best one to speak to. Obviously, we can mention names here. People that are, you know, knee deep in this and that's their life 24-7. You know, Mike Alpin or somebody like that can give you all the exact numbers and down to the, each reactor and each mine. But, you know, the bottom line is, is you, we, this industry is basically in liquidation. You are living off of the investment that was made 10, 15 years ago. You know, every day you can go on the World Nuclear Association, WNA website, and they have a tab there called new nuclear and just about once a week I go there and you'll see a new reactor either being put on the grid or they're laying the foundation for the first react first you know it's constant building and commissioning of reactors but you never see anything about any new mines being developed or being built and I think that as a speculator or as an investor you can see that when you have demand growing uh, and supply shrinking that at some point they're going to intersect and you're going to have a price response. I think Marcelo Lopez at L2 Capital has like the four things you really need to pay attention to. Ask yourself, is demand going up? Yes. Is supply going down? Yes. Is there any substitute for these reactors uh, besides uranium? No. And do these, uh, do these fuel users, the power companies that require the uranium, you know, do they eventually have to come back to this market and, and start buying uranium? fuel in long-term contracts. So this, this is how it's traded. There's a lot of focus, obviously, on the short-term, looking at the spot price. That's really not the thing to look at. These utilities like Duke Energy or Southern or any big utility makes these decisions in long-term, multi-year um, segments. They don't just go out and just buy. I mean, it may occasionally opportunistically, but most of the deals are done long-term. So I think what's going to happen is we're going to wake up one day, and there's going to be an announcement that a Duke Energy or somebody like that just signed a contract with Cameco or who knows who 
you know, at $42 a pound for this much uranium for the next three years or something. And I think that will be the, you know, the, the ultimate catalyst that gets this thing going because, you know, fuel buyers and are just like everybody else. Investors are, I mean, they're herd animals. So there's been this perception, I think, that there's this overabundance of supply out there that maybe isn't correct. And people get into these rutted roads type of thinking and they can't get out of it. But then I think that, uh, you know, you can look at the charts about the uncovered demand and things of like this. At some point, they're going to have to come back to the market in a big way in the next couple of years. So I think that's the opportunity. Yes, you covered it quite well. You covered everything there. And as we continue to spend time on the sector, watch the events that are occurring, we become more and more certain of the outcome. And it's just a matter of watching the clock tick, making sure you can maintain your strategy, your solvency as you go through this process of patience. And so we become more and more certain as time goes on. And also, as we remain in a lockdown type situation with this market, you can even start to cut out new growth, if you will, where the existing fleet will cause a problem in itself. So if you just take away shutdowns and you take away new connections and you just stick with the existing fleet, run that out, you're going to find that there is a problem even with the existing fleet with consumption and, and obviously the uh, the supply available and the bottleneck, of course, that we know that, that exists with the whole fuel cycle um, and, of course, the construction of new mines, etc., so it just, the more time this goes on, the better it looks. And it seems to be the worst, the equities continue to, to flounder, which is fantastic because it allows you more time to buy more of good equities. And so I think it's just a fascinating, fantastic situation, better than anything else out there. I mean, you and I have both looked at a lot of places in this market. This is without a doubt the best place to be, bar none. I mean, it's just fantastic. So I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, to see how things play out and, and happy to be along for the ride. Well, and, and you also mentioned too, John, I mean, when you talk about India, China, and Indonesia, and Indonesia hasn't really jumped into it yet, but when you talk about just those three nations, we're talking, I, I'm pretty certain it's going to be at current numbers, pretty close to, I'm going to say roughly 40 to 45% of the world's population. That's China, India, and Indonesia. Just those three nations. I mean, it is a chunk. If you go look up the uh, the information that's available there, I'm pretty certain that we're awful close to 40%. Um, that is substantial demand for energy going forward as these nations continue to build out and modernize their electricity grids and so forth and, and how they get their energy. So I think it's really an amazing situation that we've got going. What do you think at this point, given your time in the market for uranium, where do you, what do you see right now that investors are really missing with regards to the situation that we have right now in uranium? Is it patients that they're missing? What do you, what do you see that, that's being missed? I think that's the big thing. I mean, I like to quote uh, kind of jokingly on a YouTube channel, talk about Uncle Jesse. You know, Jesse Livermore was a famous trader back, uh, back in the 20s and 30s. Now, I will caveat this by saying he ended up blowing his brains out. But anyways, he did have some good... Uh, he, he said that, uh, good advice, he said, you know, the most money he made wasn't in his buying and selling, it was in his sitting and waiting. So I think I get a lot of correspondence from guys out there that uh, are speculating in these markets, and they can see the opportunity, they can conceptual, conceptualize it, they understand it from a, um, uh, 
the arguments, the facts. But I think that, you know, the inability sometimes in the patients, uh, that's one of the, the things that uh, people don't have. They can say, well, I can see this is going to happen. I understand what you're saying. I can see that it's a supply and demand situation. But, you know, when is it going to turn? I mean, and I think that, you know, that's a question that really can't be answered by anyone. We don't know the exact timing of it. What we can say is, is that uh, historically in these type of markets, resource markets, and particularly uranium, um, I've heard like people say before, you know, of a gold bull market, it's like, uh, you know, can get pretty radical. But I mean, a uranium market is like just the ultimate uh, asymmetry. I mean, you're talking about an industry right now that uh, if I got my numbers correct, I think at the top of the last bull market, you could have bought the entire industry for $150 billion. And currently, I think the total market cap of the entire industry is, you know, eight or nine billion. So if you just want to keep those things in perspective, and to your point, Andrew, what you said earlier was the tighter this band gets, every day that goes by, uranium fuel is being burned up in those reactors. And the thing I emphasize to folks is, is that we know that there's a supply-demand deficit. We know that uh, uh, some of the things, without getting too deaf, you know, SWOO pricing is going up. Some of the other intermediary parts of the fuel cycle, those prices are increasing. So it's going to drag along the uranium price at some point because the demand is increasing. And I tell people, you know, people have this view, especially younger guys that came up in a tech, you know, I'm 52. There's a lot of guys that I talk to in their 20s and stuff, and they're savvy technologically. I can't just call up some guys in India and have them write an app to create a new uranium mine, you know, do an all-nighter and do that out. I mean, this is something that's going to take 10 or 15 years from <laughs> the finding of the resource to permitting, to developing, to building, and both of us being in project management, construction, consulting. I mean, nothing ever goes right. I mean, everybody's trying to wreck the project, and it just, you know, there's one problem after another. So even when you're playing a project, when I'm building a plant, I mean, it still ends up being, you know, taking longer than anticipated and unanticipated problems. And I think, you know, understanding that and then bolting that onto the thesis, just, just, it's like, you know, it's like on a drag strip and that's your, that's your nitrous oxide. I mean, the fact remains, I think that, uh, and I don't like to use uh, hyperbole or anything, but I, I really think this is going to be a longer sustained and more, uh, when the snapback comes, the, the volatility to the upside and the duration is going to surprise a lot of people, including a lot of the nuclear reactor op, uh, operating companies, because I just don't think people really are understanding. And then, of course, you could have another, you know, who knows what's going to happen. You could have another cigar lake or something like that that could really, you know, constrain, um, constrain the supply even further. That's what really accelerated the, the last bull market, you know, when they had the flooding in some of the, in, in the mine. So, I mean, th these things, and I think once the sediment change happens, is as you well know, you know, you're, you said the same thing. We've seen some bottoming. We've seen some of these things. And, and that's what happens. You know, the AI, right now you've got retail in there. There's no professional money in there because they just can't get in there in size. And if they do, they're looking at Kaz Adam Prom or Cameco or something. So when this thing actually turns and the computers pick up on it um, and you see comps quarter to quarter, year over year, as the price increases and some of these companies actually start making some money, uh, you're going to see the capital come in and it will start building that, uh, that head of steam, if you will. And I think that, uh, you know, this thing, will, this thing will obviously overshoot to the upside. That's what happens in these cyclical markets and uranium being one of the most, you know, um, thinly traded. And that's what people don't really understand. I mean, if you look at it 
as market cap. It's just uh, if any kind of real money comes into this thing, it'll double and quadruple very easily. Now, I'm not trying to be, like I said, I don't want to use hyperbole, but you saw several stocks in the last bull market go up a thousand, five to ten thousand percent. Now, I don't know which ones those are going to be. I'm, I'm sure it'll happen again. So people will ask, what is, I have no clue. So, but uh, that will happen. I mean, even chemical will probably, big companies like that will go up, you know, five times maybe. That's what happened in the last bull market. So, I mean, uh, I think to your point, if played correctly, if you have the patience, you have the opportunity to add a zero or two zeros to your net worth if, if this is played correctly. And, and, and I want to emphasize, you know, this is very speculative. To the point, we really don't know. None of these companies really make any money right now especially the juniors, they have no income. So it's very speculative because we are waiting on this turn. But uh, to your point, I think a lot of the leading indicators we're looking at or a lot of folks are looking at that know more about this than I do are suggesting that that, that is happening. And, and with these herd animals in the utility industry, because I worked there for many years, you know, once the sediment changes, it will you know, be like a gazelles and a leopard chasing them or something like that. I mean, I don't want to use too many, you know, these now metaphors whatever but anyways it's uh, that's that's how i see this thing happening and i'm and i'm content I, I participated in the last one i saw what happened i mean literally andrew if you remember correctly during the last one with every week the new pricing would come out from from the uh, uxc or whoever and uranium would be up a dollar it'd be up two dollars it was like it didn't ever go down it was like for a year straight it just went up every week you know and uh as we topped out was was 135 140 dollars a pound or whatever it ended up being so the stocks responded. Am I suggesting that happens again? I don't know. History doesn't repeat, but uh, I certainly think it's a possibility. You know, and people are talking about this is where you you know that this thing really hasn't got going because people are talking about well, if we get up to like forty dollars a pound, you know, it's going to really do something to these stock prices. Well, what if we get up to even the old term, the old price when we were at before Fukushima was seventy dollars a pound? That would do. I mean, you would see ten baggers there easily. So I, I think that's going to happen. But that's going to happen over a period of years, and uh, I think it'll be sustained and more volatile to the upside than I think a lot of people are anticipating. It's certainly going to be entertaining when you you, you talk herd animals. <laughs> I like that. That's funny. I like that. Um, the uh, the utilities people give them too much credit. I'm sorry. They there are smart people there. I get that. Uh, there are smart people in in, in many places. But I can tell you that just in my experience with with uh, electric utilities uh, on the contract side through consulting work in the past and through my experience, um, these are ordinary people. There are some that excel above others and have higher levels of talent. But at the end of the day, these folks, like you said, are generally herd animals. They don't know what is going on at uranium mines. Some do, but a lot don't. They, they sit in their office. They, they do the things that they're supposed to do within the parameters and conditions of their of their policies. Many of them don't have a clue about uh, some of the things that happen in their business. Um, and so they all have their departments, um, but I can tell you based on my experience, not specifically in the nuclear power generation side, but certainly in dealing with other utilities that generate power within the U.S., notable utilities, um, not everybody there is extremely smart. A lot of them are ordinary people, and some of them just flat miss these types of trends that we're speaking of. Also, as you said, with regards to some of the gains, John, uh, during the last cycle, just go back to 2016, late 2016, early 2017. I mean, there wasn't a uranium stock that didn't at least double. There was some I can remember during that period that were 
a couple hundred percent. And then I remember some notable standouts. Uh, one example I refer back to is uh, Summit Resources for a couple week period. I think at one point it was up uh, eight, nine hundred percent. Um, I, I believe the chart's probably still out there, so you can go back and look. But uh, so it doesn't take much uh, to get moving. What I like about this time around, where we're at now, is you have a sustained, strong hand movement. It's much better, more sustained at this point. So I think some of the weak hands are shooken out, and I think we're we're getting ready to continue the uptrend. So I think that's where we're headed. Now, John, how about strategy? Can you just allude just a little bit more, a little more detail on what you think is kind of the better setup to take advantage of the sector as far as maybe allocation, if you can speak to that, maybe a number of exposures, the stage of company that you like um, or a mix, and then and then how, how you would maybe go about entry and, and exit. So my personal way of looking at this right now is um, I look at the industry like I look at most of the junior resource markets and well, you use the word entertaining before it can be entertaining. Uh, you need to, uh, as somebody that wants to participate in this, you need to understand what you're dealing with here. And you're dealing with, for the most part, with the exception of Kaz Adamprom and Cameco, which Cameco actually reported losses, but most of these companies have no sales. They have no, um, they're not mining. There's a small mining going out a couple of the, companies here in the U.S. or tails processing, things like that, but not a sustained growth of production, obviously, because the price doesn't dictate that. So you're dealing with companies that a lot of times uh, up and down the spectrum, you have companies that have excellent properties that are, uh, I mean, I can think of, you know, I like, you know, a company like NextGen. I mean, you could, that's probably going to get taken out during this next bull run. Uh, not to recommend or anything, but you get companies where you have good resources and good places with good infrastructure, and then you have, you know, moose pasture in Saskatchewan, and I'm not going to get into what I think, you know, people can make their own decisions. So you have different skill sets at these different companies. Some of them are definitely have prospects and have uh, good uh, potential. You have jurisdictional things you need to look at, i.e., you know, there's a difference between operating in Canada and operating in Mali or Niger. Um, where you have, you know, the possibility of Islamic violence uh, there with some of these terrorist groups. Um, so you need to look at that. And you, what I think the most important thing to look at, though, is the management teams and the people actually running the company. And that is emphasized by a lot of people, but I think people gloss over it. I want to, my, my success in life, and I've done business and other things in real estate or angel investing and things like this, Whoever is running the company, you really need to understand who this person is and what their experience is, if they have done this before. I mean, I hate to use, you know, some of, again, some of these quips that I use, but, you know, I'm betting a lot of times on the jockey, not necessarily the horse. You know, a crappy management team can wreck a good project, but uh, a mediocre project can be made, you can, a good management team can squeeze every drop out of the of juice out of the, out of the project. So I think aligning yourself we're taking a look at companies that have done this before in previous cycles, uh, have been successful. I think uh, the second thing to look at is, you know, how much cash do these companies have? Because as I said before, they have no cash. How do they get cash? They issue shares. And you need to really be cognizant about how this management team is spending the money that they're getting uh, from, share, uh, from these private placements and other ways that they're, get, that they're obtaining cash. 
because in the end, you can get to a point where you have diluted shareholders so much that when the turn comes, the participation won't be uh, as lucrative if you've been diluted into you know hundreds of millions of shares uh, so that you can support the lifestyle of a particular management team. Uh, obviously, we've talked about this before, but you know, lifestyle companies, I call some of these companies. So I don't want to get into, I don't like trashing different companies. People can do their own research, but there are known quantities out there. If I was a just a casual investor, not a speculator that's going to deep dive this because you need to do the work. I mean, this is why it's not easy. People don't seem to understand this. There's a lot of work involved with going through and, and doing and determining which company is which. But if I was just uh, somebody that said, well, I get the thesis and I want to participate in this with some portion of my money, risk capital. Um, uh, recently, uh, I don't know, there's one in the U.S. that just came public last week, but there's a good ETF in Canada called the Horizons. Um, I can't remember the exact uranium uh, producers, whatever ETF. It's H-U-R-A in Canada. But uh, if I was this casual investor, it's market market cap weighted. So you're going to get a lot of CAS Adam from in there. You're going to get a lot of uranium participation corporation, which holds physical. You're going to get a lot of Cameco. And then you're going to get a lot of the juniors mixed in, but it's going to be market cap based. Is that going to give you the 10,000? No, you're not going to get out, you know, 5,000% return. But if you were just somebody that was a casual investor or a general investor and you wanted to get exposure, that would be a good way to get it. Otherwise, I think that, you know, you really need to uh, take the time to deep dive these companies individually. And there's, you know, 40 or 50 companies out there that are legitimate or not, maybe not legitimate is the right word, but they're uranium companies. And then you need to go through and, and classify those as tier one, tier two, or tier three, and then understand the risk. You know, if you're a development company that has a project ready to go, if you are just a, a you know, a developer that has moose pasture or recycling old mines that have went through several owners, people need to understand that. So I think that just depends what type of work you're capable or wanting to do. And then uh, also uh, understanding the people that you're dealing with. And you need to get, you know, I encourage people, call these companies. You know, they, they will take your call and you will be able to talk to people. And I think going to some, I think everybody that's going to be involved in the, this is kind of a, a side note, but I've said this before. I think everybody in their resource investing career should go to Vancouver to one of these conferences and you will fully understand that this is an industry upon itself in a large part to separate money from people, uh, the naive to, uh, the, to, to the people in the know. It's a very tight circle of people in Toronto and Vancouver that run these companies that circulate amongst each other. And uh, as George Carlin said, it's a, it's a club and you're not in it. So you need to be cognizant of that going into this and uh, um, not, you know, that's just how it is. So um, everybody you talk to, management team is going to tell you the best story and you need to be prepared to push back and ask the hard questions. You know, have you done this before? Who's on your staff? Who's your, who's your lead geologist? Whatever, you know, bank of questions people should have. And, and then, you know, what are you spending money on? Why are you spending money right now uh, if you are and what you hope to achieve and why are you doing that in this current market environment? Things like that's the kind of questions I ask. So um, that's what I encourage people to do. If you're just a general investor, maybe the best thing to do is, like I said, look at maybe one of those ETFs. I would stay away from URA. That's a disaster. That's not legitimate for uranium. That they've, they've polluted that with all types of engineering companies and large cap 
companies that have very little to do with uh, nuclear or uranium mining. But there are some new ETFs that have come out that can get the general investor uh, some exposure with minimal amount of, then you just have to kind of just keep a high level 30,000 foot view of the uranium industry. Well, that's good information, John. And yeah, certainly the uh, the URA has been a disaster and, and it's 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 sad. And, and we were we were disappointed with our discussion with URA and it really is uh, severely misguided. And I hope they uh, are able to install some experience and talent there and, and get things on the right path um, at some point there. And also, I like, I like the tiers. You got tier one, two and three. And then you've got also the tier trash, which uh, is also another one that uh, that people can throw a lot of these names into as well. And each of us, and, and I know you have too, each of us has to some degree made our own private ETF where we've gone out and selected our own co companies to participate in this. John, can you speak just a little bit to yourself as far as what you might be trying to do? Can you just speak broadly to maybe the number of companies you feel is adequate for a portfolio here with uranium and are you looking at all the stages are you looking at explorers developers and producers how are you kind of handling that i have exposure um i mean i have some of the physical i hold through uranium participation just because uh you know i this is an anchor if you will i, I think that everybody should uh, have a little bit of that you're not going to get the big returns but it just depends what you're trying to achieve myself um you know, I go to a lot of the juniors. I'm looking at China and India and their buildouts that are going to happen over the next 20 years. And I'm like, where are they going to get their uranium? And I've been to Africa. I've been to other countries, uh, third world countries. And everywhere I go, I see Chinese people. I see Chinese engineers. I see Chinese companies doing construction. I see Chinese everywhere. And there's an excellent, people want, just as a side note, to get a perspective People should watch this movie on YouTube. It's called Empire of Dust, and it shows the documentary, kind of older documentary, give you a flavor of what's going on in Africa. You're seeing the Chinese there. This is made in the Congo, and the Chinese are building a road for the Congolese. This, this is what they do. They'll go into a country. They'll start building roads and infrastructure, and they do this as a political move to ingratiate themselves. And they are voracious, the amount of materials that they're going to need. So I'm looking at, you know, very large projects in Africa. Why? There's stable countries there, Namibia. Uh, even I don't have a problem with Niger or Mali, these places, because I always know the French Foreign Legion and the Paratroop Corps will be brought in by the French if, there's ever, if it gets too out of control. But large potential uh, resources is what the Chinese are going to be looking for. And they're not going to come to Canada and buy next gen. The Canadian government won't let them do that. They're just not going to be allowed to come to uh, up some areas, in, 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 but they will be able to go to places in China or in Africa and some of these other places where these large resource banks are going to be made available to them. And then you're looking at, you know, some, some companies in Namibia that have some prospects. Uh, you know, you've got uh, Paladins out there. They have a, 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 a Langer Hydra can be brought back on line pretty quick. You've got, uh, I, I, I'm a big fan of John Borshoff at uh, DPLO. He's done this before. A lot of people don't like it because they think he mismanaged the last thing. That's, that's regardless. The fact is, is that he created Paladin, and I think he's going to re repeat the success. So I think that uh, I'm looking to see what, what is the Chinese, where are the Chinese and Indians going to go for their material? They don't have it in their own countries. They're going to have to go to places they're going to be able to play ball to get large amounts of material. They've already done that beginning. Uh, I think there was a recent acquisition Chinese made. 
uh, mine from Rio Tinto. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it was in Africa. So I think, you know, there's some there's some analysts out there that call these countries AK-47 countries or whatever, but you just have to kind of differentiate and look at what's reality. I mean, in the end, uh, they'll, you know, the Chinese, for example, have actual armed troops in South Sudan guarding some of their infrastructure, oil infrastructure. It will come to that if it has to, because they're not going to shut the lights off in China. So I think there's some prospects there. Um, I'm a big fan of, uh, I don't know, the share counts way up there, but I do like uh, Monroe over at Bannerman. I like what he's doing. I think he's a very savvy executive, not necessarily endorsing the company. I have a lot of shares out there, but, uh, you know, he's, I think he's up and comer. So um, I, I think, you know, there's there's some select things you can do there. But again, you know, these companies are, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be cash constrained at some point. You just really need to keep track of their of their cash levels and what they're planning on doing. But uh, I, I, that's what I'm looking at. It's like the growth coming from Asia. They're going to be building hundreds of reactors over the next generation. Where are they going to get the material? You know, I don't think you can go there. Australia is going to let the Chinese and come and buy out everything. So they, they can do business in Africa. And I think there's going to be some, some big acquisitions there. I mean, I think there was an announcement this morning that, uh, you know, Chinese national gold company or one of them bought, you know, a big gold company up in Canada. So they're out looking for things. They have the money and they, and, and they need to do that. So that's kind of what my focus is. Um, I don't want to give too many of the names away because some of them are in the in portfolio, but uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm looking at. I want to look at a big resource and the ability that the government will let these uh, other governments play ball there and uh, let them make the act. That's where the, that's where the big money is. I think in, with the, uh, the development of those reactor fleets over the next 20 or 30 years. Interesting views and uh, appreciate you sharing some of the names there, John, and, and certainly Namibia and Africa is uh, hands down the best jurisdiction in Africa when it comes to uranium, without a doubt in my mind, uh, as I continue to study the jurisdictions there. And uh, so I think it makes sense. I, I think that Africa is certainly part of the portfolio, part of the strategy. With regards to companies, you know, I know you mentioned uh, John Borjoff and, and uh, Paladin. You know, every company who was not bought out or taken over during the last cycle has catastrophically failed. And it doesn't matter because they all went down 90% or more. So I, I laugh at uh, these some of these examples where uh, they all hurt. Everybody got hurt. Everybody lost 90%. So whether you call 90% a success or 100% bankruptcy a success or a failure, I, I don't I don't quite see the difference. I mean, you got cleaned out. That's just the bottom line. If you stuck through, <laughs> any other company that still exists today got completely trashed. And uh, whether they went to bankruptcy or not is just a footnote. At least that's how I see it. I, maybe I've got my stuff incorrect, but uh, that's how I see it. Well, let's move on. Let's uh, move out of uranium for a moment and just talk a few other sectors, John, before we wrap up here. Oil and gas. What are your thoughts? Just give us your your brief big picture thoughts for this sector, and and you know offshore, onshore, just give us your big picture view on this sector. Natural gas, I'm staying away from because uh, it's further out. I think I think it will be something to look at down the road. Oil, right now, I think you know I look at the facts. Uh, anybody here can go and get off listening to this. Go look up the BP statistical review. BP comes out every year. They've done it for many years. They have this statistical review. They go over every energy source, every country, what, how many, what the energy breakdown is, what the projections are for these countries growing over time. And the bottom line is, is that, you know, we use oil because it is dense, it's cheap, it's ubiquitous, 
and uh, it works. We don't do it because we have guys in, you know, sitting up in New York City and Exxon wanting to poison the earth. We use it because it allows civilization. That's, that's just the bottom line. And I'm not going to have these arguments with people anymore about it. That's just how it is. If you want to see what your life would be without it, I encourage people to go to understand what energy deprivation is because I've experienced it in the third world. Go to your breaker box, open the disconnect on Friday and live through the weekend with no electricity. You'll find out very quickly what life was like without uh, a lot of energy. So I'm a big bull on oil. Same thing basically has happened in oil that's happened in a lot of the uh, commodity complex. Oil underpins every part of civilization. Uh, mostly as a transport fuel, but it's used for everything, Andrew. And I think people, would, I, I stand there and watch, just as a side note, somebody like Greta stand there with her uh, wetsuit on for traveling the Atlantic in her carbon fiber boat with these all this fiberglass and plastics and all this stuff, just completely oblivious to the fact that all that comes from the other half of the barrel of oil that's not using transport fuels. So I think that uh, it's not going away. Uh, yes, there'll be an energy transition down the line. I don't know when it will be, but in the immediate future, oil needs to be used. And again, there's been insufficient investment around the world because we have had an artificial supply response here in the United States and the shales based on low interest rates and uh, market hype. And none of these companies here, very few of them, I should say none, very few have made any money, much less cash flow positive. So that industry now is is blowing up like cannabis. It was a bubble. Uh, you're seeing uh, production go down, an emphasis on cash flow, living within cash flow by management's returning cash to shareholders via buybacks. You see many of these stocks down 80 or 90 percent. That should tell people something. A lot of bankruptcies. And if you follow the, you know, frack spreads down the whole thing, the thing's rolling over. And what you've not had is you've created this air pocket of five to seven years where insufficient investment was being made around the rest of the world because the price signals were not sufficient to induce companies to do that. Add on top of that, two other things I think people missed. This zeitgeist, you have, you know, you have these oil executives, they get pulled in it too. They're being sued by various states and cities for, you know, CO2. Uh, they're trying to go green again. It's the second time BP has went down this track. And what you look at the reserve life indexes of these companies, they're in decline. Typically, unofficially, they try to keep their reserve life, uh, the amount of reserves they have is 10 years of their production. And they're, most, most of these companies are getting out of that. As a matter of fact, Shell is down to seven and a half years. It's just been completely inadequate investment. And I think what you're going to see is an excellent opportunity. Just real quickly, in Canada, it's really exacerbated. You have companies trading up there that are cash flow positive that have 10 to 25% cash flow yield. So you basically have a company, I'll use a company like CNQ, was one of the largest oil sands operators. It has approximately a 15% cash flow yield. So what are they doing? Well, they just have maintenance CapEx going on and they're buying back shares. If no one else will buy the shares, they're gonna buy their shares. You have a company, I'll just throw this out, Omega Energy is a perfect example. It's a 25% cash flow yield. What are they doing? They're maintenance capitalization, holding production, steady, not growing production in this environment, but they have a 25% cash flow yield. What are they doing? They're massively paying down their debt. And, you know, you have companies left and right there that are just buying back shares by the handful. If no one else will buy their shares, they'll buy it. And some of these companies, if you have a 20% cash flow yield, you can buy your entire company in four years if, if, if nothing changes at current oil prices. And I think oil prices are going higher over the next three years. So I'm particularly interested in offshore oil. 30% of our oil comes from there. It's been severely deprived of capital, massive amount of bankruptcies, massive amount of consolidations. 
When it does snap back, which is inevitable, uh, you're already seeing a recovery in the shallow water and jack-up rigs uh, and things like this. Rates are going up. Utilization rates are going up. They're tiptoeing back offshore, if you will, into these to cycle the projects quicker and they're cheaper. You're seeing the recovery there. And I'll throw one out from, uh, you know, I'll throw out a, uh, a, a company I'm excited about is Tidewater. It's a large cap uh, offshore service vessels. They, these are the vessels that bring the men and the equipment out to the rigs. Um, it's severely depressed industry. Uh, and you will see the recovery. They support all this offshore drilling. Uh, is the company depressed right now? Yes. But if you look at, you know, some of the factors in the industry, you know, every three years, uh, these three to five years, these boats or all ships have to go through a, a recertification program that costs millions of dollars. So if you have something that's been sitting on a dry dock or sitting up on the land on dock on uh, some of these boats for three to five years in the weather, does it make sense? It may not be worth to spend $3 million to put it in a dry dock and try to, you know, re recertify it so you can put it back offshore. So it's supply is shrinking again. This is, this, is, this is the overall thing we're seeing right in all these discussions we're having. <clears throat> Demand is either increasing or at least uh, not going down, but supply is, is, is definitely going down. And you don't need a massive pickup in demand if supply in these various uh, industries we're talking about for sectors is declining. And that's what we're seeing. That's the other, that's the same thing we're seeing. But again, it's a patience issue. People you know, can look at previous cycles where it is in a definite recovery. But uh, the, the stock prices don't reflect that. And so it's another opportunity to get in uh, still in the first inning, if you will. Certainly, the onshore in the U.S. has just had capital thrown at it. And, and that is still washing out and has yet to fully take its effect. Um, bad capital misinvestment. And uh, that is still coming off. And then onshore, or I'm sorry, offshore, John, like you mentioned, I, I think it goes back to BP Macondo. That accident in the Gulf has been why we are still here, um, where there's been a tremendous opportunity presented, and that now is starting to pick up yet again. And I think there's some some interesting situations there that you can take advantage of. And appreciate you sharing some of the names. Can you speak just a little bit more? You you touched on it. Can you go into the oil and gas rate of depletion? versus new discovery reserves for oil and gas? Yeah, that's uh, that's another topic that I've been talking about a lot lately that I think people gloss over. They think, well, you know, the, the marginal barrel is what, what, what uh, determines the price. It's the same thing in the shipping industry with shipping. But to your point, because of the lack of investment, you know, these are depleting, these are extractive industries. So that means that you're taking these reserves out of the ground, whether a mine or out of an oil well, they just don't go forever at 100 barrels a day forever. I mean, they have depletion. Uh, and if you look at the overall oil industry, I mean, currently the demand for oil is around 100 to, to 101 million barrels a day. That's a lot of oil. That's 3 billion barrels a month. That's 36 billion barrels a year of oil production or demand. And that is growing, just going back to what we talked about before, because of the emerging and frontier markets. You can throw this in a spreadsheet. You can go look at the oil consumption S-curve of a country like South Korea, or countries in Western Europe, as they developed at certain GDP levels, Goring and Rosenzweig has excellent information on this. If people go to their website, they write about this. And you can see, like we talked about, Indonesia, China, India, plug it in, just use South Korea's annual uh, per capita rate of oil consumption and plug the thing. You're getting up to 120 and 130 million barrels of oil demand. If you get to the South Korea type levels, if you get to Western Europe type levels, you start getting into even higher 
demand levels. If you want to use the U.S., which isn't probably appropriate because we have a you know car culture here that a lot of people don't have, but suffice to say, I mean, you have this constant demand even during the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, you had a small decline in demand, and then it rebounded the next year and has grown at one and one and a half percent a year. So that's a million to a million and a half barrels a year of new demand. Plus, if you want to look at the overall depletion of the industry, depending on who you want to talk to, Rystad, Exxon, you're anywhere from four to six percent a year. So you are depleting the overall 100 million barrels a year of, of production, four to six percent. So that's anywhere from four to six million barrels of new oil that needs to be found and brought online every year just to account for depletion. So now you add the growth and demand with depletion, and you are looking at replacing anywhere from five to seven million barrels of, 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 of oil production every single year. And that requires hundreds of billions of dollars of investment, consistent investment over time. Again, you can't just dial up India and have a couple guys go on a heater and, and create a new oil field for you and overnight on a computer. It, it takes a lot of time and effort and money, and it just hasn't happened. So we, you know, for, I think I've saw a stat recently over the last uh, several years, we've only, we've only replaced one barrel for every six barrels that we have been using. So we are, you can look at any chart. I have these in my weekly uh, discussions on YouTube and in my newsletter. I mean, the, the underinvestment is tremendous, and we are really going to be having a, uh, we are going to, in the next couple of years, we're going to have a tremendous response in the oil price because the demand, you know, it's inelastic demand. Once somebody in India or China buys a car, they don't park it in the garage and just let it sit there. People use, use these vehicles. So uh, it's just a math problem. You can, you know, create a spreadsheet and just, you know, figure out how, where you want to go and then look at, look at all the comments that are being made by the oil companies or even you know uh, what's going on uh, in the you know with Saudi Aramco or some of these other people, the investments just aren't happening. So um, I think that at some point, if you don't make the necessary investments in an extractive industry, you're going to have a supply crunch. And again, it's a cyclical industry. You have to catch the cycles at the right time, and you can make tremendous uh, amounts of money. So uh, yeah, that's depletion is something that people don't even talk about. Uh, and I'm not like peak oil in this thing. I think if, you, if the price gets high enough, they'll go out and find every marginal barrel that they can, but that takes, the response takes time. So uh, you could have a two or three or four year environment. You know, we all remember, recall, you know, when oil prices, I remember in 2008, when oil was $140 a barrel, even Nancy Pelosi was saying that she was open to considering opening up drilling offshore California because the response, you know, People are paying six or seven dollars a gallon for gasoline. Uh, everybody's going to uh, get on the bandwagon. So now, again, if you if you're of the persuasion, there are people out there. I talk to them that think oil is going away, that we've reached peak demand. That seems to be the current uh, uh, fashion in a lot of the discussions. I don't believe that based on what what I read in my travels. Uh, people in Uzbekistan or Malaysia or in Indonesia, they don't can't afford a sixty-five or $70,000 Tesla. That's just not going to happen. They buy small cars, Hyundais and Toyotas, and, and use them. So uh, I, I just don't see uh, there's going to be an energy transition at some point. You can't have unlimited growth on a finite planet. Where, when and where that happens, I don't know. But I, I certainly see a, a, at least one more uh, very large uh, oil price response based on the demand and supply scenarios that we've just talked about. 
Well, that's good stuff, and, and you're absolutely right. It's amazing how price can change the opinion of, of folks who are on the other side. And I think offshore is going to be a significant contributor to going forward on this. I think offshore is really the place that really makes the most sense. And as you said, as the price keeps going up, um, at some point, all of that marginal crappy projects will, will start to come on and, and contribute to the next cycle. Well, let's move over briefly to precious and base metals, John. What's your view on this market and how are you participating in this sector? So I think that uh, we're in the beginning stages of another uh, run in precious metals. Uh, I think the bull market, uh, you know, we've had probably, I don't know, almost a decade now of prices going nowhere, but I think that, you know, we've reemerged from that. And I think that, uh, you know, from a perspective of gold, I'm, I guess I'm old school, I'm 52, but uh, I've done a lot of study on monetary theory and, and, and what's happened mo with monetary systems throughout the history. And I'm not a, I'm not a doomsday gold bug type person. I'm not, a, I'm not a James Dines type person, but I do take a pragmatic uh, look at things. And I remember uh, uh, I've shown this video and I've shown other people, I, Ray Dalio was giving a talk at the Council of Foreign Relations and he was talking about currencies and he was talking about gold specifically. And he said that uh, in his own personal portfolio, he looks at gold as a currency. He looks at it as insurance against uh, central bank and government malfeasance, which is endemic around the history of the world. It goes without saying people that deny this are living in some alter reality. And he was laughed at. People at the Council of Foreign Relations laughed at the CEO of Bridgewater, one of the largest uh, money managers in the entire world, because he said, he advocated for at least a 10%. And he said, you know, if you don't have some allocation to gold, you don't understand history and economics. And, and I think that sums it up. That's something that I use. You really don't. I mean, it's insidious what has happened. Um, we talk about wealth inequality. We talk about all these things are becoming mainstream. And this all this shiny object of socialism and things that are being taught to people that as a solution. And no one looks at uh, what the Federal Reserve has done to the middle class in this country. Um, you know, over time, you know, you should have a slight deflation or disinflation environment and a working man's wages should become more valuable over time and not be dissipated through constant monetary malfeasance by the central bank. And that's what's happened. And that's why you have a large part. It's not all of the reason why we have wealth inequality, but it's a large reason why we have wealth inequality. I mean, obviously, we're savvy enough, and a lot of the listeners here, that we participated. I mean, my standard of living continues to go up every year because I am able to participate in these markets or I'm on the right side of whatever, you know, in renewable energy. But, you know, if you're working in a factory job up in Michigan and you're, you're not as educated or understand these things, you're, you might get a 3 or 4% wage increase over the, you know, portion of your contract, three-year contract with UAW and GM, but... You're, you're actually losing purchasing power. People don't understand it. It's the frog being boiled. You don't just throw a frog into a boiling pot of water. You put him into a pot with cold water and slowly turn it up. And he never understands that he's being cooked alive. So I think that, uh, you know, most people really don't understand uh, these things. They're not taught, obviously. I don't remember being taught any of this in high school or any of my college classes. It was all Keynesian economics and, and a bunch of BS. It doesn't really apply. I mean, I don't even teach people how to even run a checkbook. So, I mean, I think that uh, from that perspective, to get back on track on the gold, I think we're in a new bull market. Why? There's a tremendous amount of money printing going on around the world by all kinds of governments. 
there's a tremendous amount of debt out there, and that debt can't be serviced. There's a lot of malinvestment, and that's why we're seeing uh, zero interest rates all over the world. I mean, I mean, for heaven's sakes, I think I saw last time I heard or read 13, 14, 15 trillion dollars in negative yielding government bonds around the world. This is not normal. And I remember I was just talking to my father about this. I remember back in the early 80s when interest rates were 15, 16 percent on T-bills and my father taking my grandparents down to the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis. They withdrew all their money from the local banks. They were getting 3 percent in their passbook savings and went down and bought T-bills at 15 percent. You can't even put money if you're a retiree or a saver. Where are you going to go? They, these central banks have turned everybody into a speculator. You have to reach for return. That's why you see all this malinvestment. The pension funds are in the same. That's why they finance the, uh, the, the shale boom, because you know, the bonds were 7 or 8%. So insurance companies, I mean, I wouldn't want to be running a pension fund or an insurance company trying to match my actuarial tables with 0% interest rates or 1%, you know, 2% T-bond yields. It just doesn't work. So I think from an individual perspective, if you look at all this, it just can't end well. And now you have a lot of new up-and-coming politicians talking about modern monetary theory. It's just money printing wrapped with a with a, a PhD veneer of left-wing politics. That's my view, at least. It doesn't work. It's been tried before. Uh, so I think people need to have an allocation to gold and uh, precious metals in hand, if you will. And then if people want to speculate in gold mining companies, now you're back to you know the same discussion we had about you know junior investing. Uh, resource markets uh, like with uranium, you, get, you really got to do due diligence. Now, I will say, if I take a breath, come up for air here, I would take a look, something that piqued my interest, uh, if you're just an average investor that wants exposure, without getting into the junior world, that's another, you know, highway robbery potential deal there. But uh, Frank Holmes over at U.S. Global Investors came out with a new ETF. It's called GoAU. And people can go look at that, but it has a big emphasis on royalty and streaming companies. Uh, you're, now you're talking about your Franco Nevadas, a Cisco, Wheat and Precious Metals. And historically, these companies don't have the same risk as gold mining companies. They've been able to have high uh, returns, a return on investment, even in stagnant gold markets. And uh, you won't get the same uh, juice or run. If we have a precious metals bull market, like I think we will, uh, but uh, you you can participate and you will have a high concentration in a lot of the royalty and streaming companies. And that is not a market-based ETF. That is a they have a methodology around profitability and return on investment that they use to choose which companies are in the ETF. So uh, a lot of your GDX and GDXJ, I would stay away from that kind of stuff. It's market-based, uh, um, market cap-based. But if I was if I wanted to dip my toe in there and have some exposure to precious metal companies and I was just a general investor, I would take a look at that product. It, it has a low expense ratio, and I, I kind of like what they're doing. And it has outperformed in its short history the GDX and the GDXJ. So, and I think if you just want to be an individual stock investor, um, take a look at some of these um, uh, of these uh, royalty companies. I like, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there's large caps like Franco Nevada, but a Sandstorm Gold has set themselves up for the next three to five years with some of the royalties they have coming online and streaming. And then there's this junior I'll mention that I'm uh, pretty high on. It's kind of overpriced right now, but the management team is outstanding. And I think they're really setting themselves up and that's Metalla Royalty. It's in Vancouver. I think it's the only company on the Vancouver exchange that pays a dividend. So it's a, it's a smaller royalty company. 
and they're rolling up a lot of silver royalties, but uh, that's that's another that's a junior I would take a look at uh, if somebody was interested. But uh, you start getting into the gold mining sector, that's uh, has a historic, you know, same thing. It's tiered. You got your producers, developers, pro uh, project developers, stuff like that. But I think uh, uh, if I was going to participate, and I think gold's going to make new all new all time highs in the next several years. That that goes without a doubt, just because of it. There's not going to be any alternative except for to create more currency units. And I think that that's going to, and I think we are, you know, we're moving away from globalization back to nationalism. That's going to increase costs, inflation. I think there's an inflation bias coming back. I remember seeing the Economist magazine several months ago had a tipped over dinosaur that was deflating like a bouncy castle. It said, you know, inflation is dead. Well, that's the magazine cover contrarian indicator right there. It was the same thing in oil in 1997 when oil was $10 a barrel and said oil was dead. So these guys always get it wrong at the inflection points. I think we're, the gold price is obviously uh, moving higher uh, in step fashion, but uh, I think we see all, all new time, all time highs in the next several years. Yeah, and this is good thoughts and good views, John. I appreciate you sharing that information. And certainly, I can't stress enough the use of actual physical precious metals, not not paper, none of that crap. Um, the actual physical precious metals, whether it's it's partially stored and partially in your possession, whatever, take your pick. But uh, certainly, the, the physical exposure is really key at this point, and uh, gold should make up a large portion of that physical metals portfolio and certainly on the royalty side i i just have to add um and it's no secret but certainly sandstorm gold is, is fantastic and a company called the mavericks metals which is in that twilight zone of not quite to a sandstorm size and not a a very very small company uh and it's just in that growth area that uh has a fantastic uh, situation that's that's occurring there so certainly take a look at those and, and the ones that you mentioned as well now can you speak to uh is there a gold producing company you like is there is there one or two that you want to mention to the audience on that side and then also can i get your view on copper well i mean i have some uh smaller companies i'm looking at they're in my um uh, newsletter i don't really want to get into the junior ones because uh, you really the write-up on them is you really have to understand uh, what's going on. But uh, I'm mostly uh, in the royalty companies uh, that I mentioned, and uh, I'm a big holder of Sandstorm. I do have shares of Go AU. I have two juniors in the portfolio, but uh, I really don't want to get in and talk to them. And I, I really haven't done a lot of re – I've been burned so many times on these gold companies that I'm really hesitant to uh, talk about them outside the royalty space. But I will talk about uh, one company – I am a very big bull, switching to base metals, specifically copper. I'm, I like, uh, I'm a big fan of Robert Friedland, the guy that developed the Oyu Tolgoi mine in, uh, well, he found it, his Ivanhoe metals found it. Uh, and what he talked about at a recent conference about the copper price, copper's in the same boat as everybody, as everything else, irrespective of what happens with EVs and renewable energy uh, demand, copper, uh, we're finding less copper, lower head grades, harder to find. Incentive price is, hot, is a lot higher to develop new mines. And we have uh, copper demand that's growing at 3% a year. And uh, we kind of know where all the big copper resources are. So I'm not sure where they're going to find uh, all this new copper that they need. Um, we are looking at deficit of this year. I think it was around last time I looked, 
350,000 tons, and this just gets worse as we go forward, uh, specifically, especially if uh, uh, electric vehicles and some of this renewable stuff uh, keeps keeps going at its current pace. Um, but it's the same thing. You have, you know, when you're talking about mining, you have a lot of risk. Uh, there's a lot of juniors out there. It's the same thing. It's tiered again. But uh, I, f I found a couple. I found one company that I like, and I will mention it. Uh, it's in Chile, and uh, it's been around for a while. But I think a recent new. I, I owned them several years ago, and then they weren't doing so well. And then they've made some re a recent news that I think I like. Uh, what's happening there? And it kind of will, will tail into the rising copper price. I'm thinking about this uh, Marigo Resources. They're basically they just process the tails from Cadelco's operations. Uh, it basically, you have a big water cannon. They blast the tailings. They go into a sluice. They go down to the plant and they pull the additional remaining copper molybdenum out of the uh, tailing stream. They also uh, have another tailing stream coming from a current mine that Cadelco has, which is the National copper company of, uh, of Chile. And these are long-term projects. I mean, you have decades of uh, production here going on. So what's interesting and why I'm excited about the company currently is because they did a big expansion to expand their production. They just basically commissioned that plant, brought it online. It's almost doubled the production. So the current copper prices, they actually lowered their cash costs and all-in costs. It's going to take a couple quarters to get it lined out. You know, any kind of new process that you bring on takes a couple quarters to line things out. So I think, it, you know, they're not making a ton of money right now. They are cash flow positive, I believe. And uh, I think, though, where I think copper's going well over $4, $5 a pound in the next several years, or as Robert Friedland says, he thinks it's going high enough where you're going to need a telescope to see the price. But uh, I, I, I think a company like that, you don't have a lot of mining risk. You basically are processing. Uh, you kind of know what you're what you're dealing with there. So I think somebody wants some copper exposure. Um, uh, that would be an interesting uh, uh, thing to look at. Things like that. I, I'm always looking to hedge my risk with these companies because mining is really a crappy business. It really stinks. Um, it's hard to do. It's capital intensive. A lot of things go wrong. Like I said before, everybody's in there trying to wreck the project some way or another, whether it's outside sources, even guys in your company that don't know what they're doing. Uh, anything can happen. So, you know, if you catch the bull market, that's fine. But I'm looking always to try to hedge my, uh, hedge my risk or, or find something like that where your risk is a little bit lower. That's why I like royalty companies. And, um, and in that space, if people want to take a look at it, I've owned this company for, a long time, Altius Minerals in Canada, outstanding management, knows how to play cyclicality. I mean, they were amazing during the last cycle, down cycle. They held back, they had their cash, they held, they held, they held, and then they bought a bunch of copper and uh, other uh, royalties, and now they're enjoying uh, increasing cash flow and um, the same type of situation, the upswing, so cash flows are up, buying back stock. Uh, it's not going to be a 10-bagger, but uh, it's something that, uh, if nothing else, people should read their presentations because they just explain the cyclicality of these resource markets and how to properly take advantage of them. But uh, Amerigo, I like for copper. I have to say, I like the overall, this is going to be a little bit too much for some people, but uh, I, I still have a, a fascination and belief in Mongolia's future. It kind of lined things out there, just in general, that country. Um, I would stay away from uh, Turquoise Hills right now because I think that they, Rio Tinto and them are having some issues with the blocking cave. 
that they got going on there. But uh, Rio Tinto does know how to mine, and I, I suppose that they will eventually uh, uh, figure it out. But um, that could be uh, a speculation. People should keep an eye on Turquoise Hill because if they, if they do get the uh, underground situation straightened out and the Mongolian government doesn't go schizophrenic again, they could have a tremendous run also. So uh, uh, other base metals, nickel, big fan of nickel. Uh, I think it's undersupplied again. The Indonesian government, people know what has happened there where they have banned exports. That was supposed to happen in a couple of years. They brought it, brought it forward. That's influencing nickel price. Just real quickly, if you want a twofer on nickel and gold, I like Independence Group in Australia, outstanding management team, very highly profitable nickel mine. Plus, they have a gold mine that's producing about, I think, 150 ounces, 150,000 ounces a year. I think their partner is Ashante, uh, Anglo Gold. And uh, that's a very high, high profitable mine, too. And, you know, a lot of people, especially in North America and Canada, or U.S. and Canada, they don't really look at a lot of the Australian uh, companies. And I think there's a lot of potential there, but I, I do like them. I think the same thing that applies to copper is going to happen in nickel. Lots of good information, John, and certainly I agree with you. The the Australian component for us in North America is is probably lacking for a lot of investors. I, I certainly see that happen quite a bit, and it looks like you're seeing the same thing. And Amerigo Resources certainly, uh, you know, we we spoke to Ross Beatty a couple of weeks ago or whatever it was a month ago, and he. Uh, uh, continues to hold that company. They have a unique situation. You know, they're not. Uh, they're, they don't have all the risk of a of a general operating company, so to speak. They've they're kind of have a nice little unique niche market there. And of course, we had that stock for a couple of years and did really well with it. Uh, we haven't got back into it, but we've done really well with that stock in the past. It's on the watch list uh, yet yet again. And of course, Ivanhoe Mines over with Robert Friedland seems to uh, really just keep moving along uh, in, in light of all the negativity regarding the DRC in South Africa. Uh, somehow he's able to keep the wheels greased and, and keep things moving over there with Ivanhoe Mines. Uh, on the copper side, in addition to Marigo, as you probably know, we do have a highly favorable opinion of Tesico Mines uh, with what they're doing with a, a new project coming on in Arizona and their existing operations. I think that they have a, a really good, unique situation uh, that's, that's starting to come out more and some very interesting opportunities out there. And, and of course, folks know that, that in our portfolio, as far as some good gold companies out there, obviously your, your senior producers, uh, are, there's a couple good ones there. And in the mid-tier sector, I think that there's quite a few good ones as well. Certainly, Equinox Gold is is there now with with their production and growing significantly. Uh, a company called Lee Gold Mining, which not a lot of people pay attention to, also has a fantastic growth profile and existing production. So these guys are looking quite good. And of course, Clive Johnson over at B2 Gold, fantastic operation. And seems like Clive can go just about anywhere in the world and, and get stuff done and has very little troubles on the government and, and social side, which is also a good thing. Let's wrap up here, John. Um, can you highlight for us the various services and features that you provide at Actionable Intelligence Alert? And how can the audience sign up? Yeah, I mean, um... Like you mentioned earlier, we do a lot of re I do a lot of research. As you say, it's just myself, but uh, I do have a lot of contacts. Uh, met a lot of people, so uh, um, I've, I I kind of follow Munger. I keep going back to Charlie Munger. It's like you know, I try to find the best minds out there with the best ideas, uh, plus my own ideas, obviously. But uh, that's a good way to do things because you know you can't you can't invent everything yourself or come up with every idea. No one's that smart. So I have a lot of contacts. 
And I think that's what we try to do. We try to identify, like we've talked about here, uh, um, especially highly cyclical, undervalued markets that have uh, a high potential for an asymmetric payoff, and then try to find a, a, a vehicle, whether it's a stock or whatever, uh, to, to take advantage of that. So that's what we do there. Um, we have a portfolio that comes out monthly, uh, a newsletter comes out monthly. Uh, you can just go to the um, website uh, that you mentioned earlier, actionableintelligencealert.com, and there's a subscribe button there. If you also go there and sign up, uh, there'll be a pop-up. If you give, give your email address, you'll get on our mailing list. We put a lot of free content and weekly email talking about these exact same uh, things that we've talked about during this uh, interview. Uh, more in a general sense, uh, and that kind of gives you a good, you know, you can assess my thinking if it's correct or if it aligns with uh, your particular views also or, or, or piques your interest. And then uh, but we also have um, the YouTube channel that's been taken off, and we do a weekly video market uh, wrap, if you will. We talk about these same issues, uh, have a lot of interaction there in the comment section with a lot of smart guys, uh, answer questions, whatever, uh, talk about these particular and up, do a lot of updates because most people can't follow this stuff as tightly as we do. Uh, and so I try to update uh, folks on uh, what's going on or, or if things are, uh, you know, how things are progressing in these various recoveries in these industries. So uh, they could get me there or on Twitter. Uh, I really encourage people to get on Twitter. I mean, it's not really like Facebook or any of these goofy things with cat videos. There's a lot of good FinTwit and Uranium Twit guys out there. And if you start following myself, you'll start being exposed to like Marcelo or Mike Alkin and all these guys that are out there. Uh, and a lot of guys that only have maybe a thousand or two thousand followers. There's a guy up in Canada who's been doing yeoman's work on Canadian energy. He's the last fund up there. A guy like Eric Nuttall. Uh, I mean, there's this, you. You will start. It's, you, you can just be a lurker. You can say, "Wow, uh, that's interesting," or "I didn't know that." Or people put links to different research that you wouldn't normally have access to. So uh, those three uh, avenues: uh, the website, uh, the YouTube channel. And on Twitter, I think are uh, the best ways to get get a hold of us or, or follow us. Excellent. Well, John, uh, it was really good to chat, and really appreciate you coming on the show, and, and look forward to having you back again soon. All right, Andrew, I really appreciate it. And like I said before, I really like your work, what you guys do, and uh, uh, was really uh, excited about having this interview. So I appreciate it. Thank you.